I'm Allison Knowlton Mason. I'm Stanley Bradley, and we're friends turned family, getting together to tell stories, laugh, observe, and think. This is the family meeting. Okay, here we go. We have another fun member of our family here. We chose her because of her ability to tell stories. This memory episode was one where we told a lot of stories. And so we are so excited to have Natasha with us today. Welcome, Yay! Natasha. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so excited. Uh, all right, well, this, this question is going to be super fun. So tell everyone how you know us and what you're up to these days. So um, I'm Natasha and I know Allison because actually I was working at Teach for America Institutes. It was a terrible summer and <laughs> as, had as all of institutes staff. can be <laughs> rough. <laughs> anyway, so all these different staff members were coming through for meetings. So I was having like five or six meetings a day, honestly. And then Allison came in to meet with me. I met with her for like two hours, you know, amidst this day that had all these other things to do. And I immediately left and told my team, I was like, I just met the, the like a most amazing person. I wish I could have worked with her one day, but I'm never working for Teach for America ever again. So I guess that dream is just never going to happen. And then fast forward, like seven months, I intentionally did not apply to institutes for the following summer. I was like, I am not working for them. And then in like January, I get a phone call from the person I said I want to work with one day, and it was Allison. <laughs> so um, I, we actually formally met because she was my boss, because I went back and worked for Teach for America for <laughs> Allison. I should say I worked to work for Allison, should, that's not what for you Teach say. for America. <laughs> um, and now she's like my favorite mentor, and which is friend mentor. <clears throat> I love it. Yes. And so I know Stan. So here's the thing. <laughs> Listening to the other like episodes when people are talking about how they actually know Stan, it took him took me a while last week to realize I actually have never <laughs> talked to Stan before this moment. <laughs> because this whole time I was like, oh my gosh, because I the thing that Stan doesn't know is that we've been having conversations for the past year because yes. he'll be on Instagram Live and I'm talking to the Instagram Live. Stan yeah. doesn't hear me. <laughs> so, so we've been friends having deep conversations for the last year and Stan just hasn't heard anything I said. So. I approve. I agree. I like, this is like, I guess this is like seeing a pen pal for the first time. Cause I feel like we've communicated. I feel like we know each other. This is really like just meeting your pen pal for the first time. That's, that's what, it, that's what we're going to call it. Like, it's not like we're just, we're just meeting at all. So that's great. I like that. You're like my Instagram and Spotify pen pal. There you go. I would text Allison after listening to an episode of the family meeting. And I'd be like, the three of us had a great conversation this morning when I was watching dishes. Like I literally talked back to y'all. I'm like, you know, Stan, that was a great point. So I love it. I absolutely love it. Like this smile is now not going to leave my face and I'm going to be like, my cheeks are going to be hurting, but it's all good. <laughs> And so, yeah, that's how I know Allison and Stan. And so what I'm up to is that I'm in graduate school for sociology with a focus on applied community and economic development. Mm. So right now I am working <clears throat> in rural housing, doing research and uh, like community development practices through uh, like culturally competent design. It's a very interesting program working with like uh, federal art institutes and architects and community members. So it's really exciting. And I'm doing research in counter-capitalist, anti-racist community development practices in low-income Black communities with a focus on housing and finance. So I spent a lot of time reading all of those books. If you're on Spotify, I'm motioning to a bunch of books behind me about racial capitalism. <laughs> so, wow. um, so that's what I'm diving into. And then on the side, I'm a college advisor for swimmers specifically. So I help them with recruiting and college access. So that's me. Okay. So I think we have to back up, give a little bit more about who you are so that these like amazing things that you're doing and studying are in a little bit more context. So who I am, I am, well, if you're looking at my little floating head on Spotify, you can't tell, but I'm a very tall woman, about over six feet. I'm in the 99th percentile of female height in the United States wanted a fun fact um so <laughs> I really live life like around all the things that I love and I'm passionate about so the most important thing to me is actually my friends I love my friends my family I should use the terms 
be on brand. Um, <laughs> they're really important to me. I really love food. That's like another big thing in my life. <laughs> um, like a silly part is like, I love the idea of love and all the things that come around it. Every lifetime Christmas movie I watch, even though I know the ending when it starts, I still watch it and then get mad that I knew the ending when it ended. Um, and I love living a very dramatic life and then telling everyone the stories about my dramatic life. And anyone who's been around me for extended periods of time will tell you things just happen to me. And then I love calling every single one of my friends and telling the same story seven or eight times to every single friend so they know what happened in a day. Um, but I'm also just really passionate about like equity, racial justice, and then mostly specifically with children. I love working with teenagers specifically. And so all of those things, my life revolves around all of those things, the things I love and the passions I have. And so that's really important to me. And then most recently, I guess, in terms of who I am and how I show who I am to the world has increasingly revolved around uh, kind of recently becoming like having a disability. And so I'll talk more about that because that's, that's pertinent to the discussion today about memory. But uh, even though it's not who I am, it definitely alters how I express who I am to the world in relation to like the people I love, the things I love, how I engage with them, how I'm able to work in my passion. So that's, that's a bit about me. Yeah. Yes. I'm so excited. So like, excited. Also in my mind, I'm planning that when the pandemic is over, how we're getting together, like in person, in real life. So yeah, I'm so excited for this conversation. Yes. Um, okay. So like I said at the beginning, and like I think is already evident, Natasha is a storyteller. And so when we did the memory episode last time, we told so many stories. And so when we were trying to figure out who to invite for this, Natasha was a like clear winner, natural choice, even though I was like, I know you haven't met her saying officially, but that's fine, right? We'll work out those details. So let's start with the questions from last time. Tell us about your earliest memory. My earliest memory. Memories, so, memories. If, you, if you prefer. Memories. I love, I always take a chance to tell an extra story. So, <laughs> um, so my earliest, earliest memory was right around the age of two. And I didn't realize I had this memory until much later in life, but I'll walk through that essentially. So um, when I was around eight or nine, my mother brought me to a hospital to visit someone who was admitted. And I remember walking into the hospital, into a hallway, and it was like, immediately my body remembered I was, I had been here before. Like, it was like a memory I didn't even know I had that was like just unlocked being in that hallway. And all of a sudden, all these memories came flooding back to me. And I realized I had been to this hospital before. So I turned to my mother and I was like, is this where I was admitted when I had meningitis? So I had meningitis when I was two. Um, I went to the hospital for a couple of weeks. And I mean, I was so young that that's a, people didn't think I would remember that, but being back in the hospital, it was like my body immediately remembered that I had been there. And I, I pointed to the hallway and I was like, that's the hallway I was in when I had meningitis. That's where my room was. And mother was so shocked. She's like, how could you possibly remember that? But I specifically remember laying in the crib and like looking out towards the green lawn that was outside my door. And there was like two sets of bars. It was the bar for the crib and the, the bar for the gate outside the hallway. And I remember laying there and looking out through two sets of bars for an extended period of time. And as soon as I was standing in the hallway perpendicular to where my room was, I was like, that's where my room was. Cause I remember that lawn and what that looked like. And the other thing I remember too, is that my aunt would drop toys into the crib. And so I don't, I don't have like a clear picture of my, like the person that's putting the toys in my crib, but I know it was my aunt. And I remember asking my mom, did auntie come and bring a whole bunch of toys to the hospital? And she's like, how do you remember these things? But she would ask me, like, do you remember the spinal tap? And I'm like, I had to do a spinal tap. And she was like, yes, it was horrible. And I don't remember any of like the trauma or being sick, but I remember looking out through the, the gate, the, the bars to the lawn and my aunt bringing me these toys. And throughout life, for some reason, after that moment, when I was around eight or nine, when my mom brought me back to the hospital, ever since then, I've remembered that memory. And I think that like, it sticks with me because it really in some ways represents other phases of my life where I feel like I'm in a place that is I'm, I'm in a, in a situation or a place that's out of my control. That's not because of my doing. And I'm like looking at this green lawn, like there's this other side I want to get to and I can't get there outside of based on my own control. But at the same time, I always remember people coming to me and supporting me like my aunt with those toys. And so I feel like whenever I'm going through situations, 
I remember that memory. And I'm like, even though I'm behind these two sets of gates, looking out at the lawn, people are going to come to me and support me and like be there with me. So I think that that's why it replays so much in my mind now. Um, My other memory is when I was around the age of eight and my mom brought my, my brother, my cousin and I to a zoo camp. So they built this really big tree house at the zoo in Jamaica where I lived. And it was like the best new thing. And they just, it just opened it. They had a summer camp. So my mom dropped us all off in the summers each day for the camp. And what I remember about the camp was one, I got into the first altercation I've been in in my life <laughs> and it was only one of three. And what happened was there was this girl who would follow me around. It didn't matter where I went, she was behind me. And I just remember I was, we were in some kind of session and I was like, I'm going to go to the bathroom because this girl would not leave me alone. And so I get up and go to the bathroom and I turn around at the bathroom door and who was behind me? And I'm like, what are you going to do, pee with me? Like, why are you? And so I lost it. I lost it at the, at that door of the bathroom. I was like, you cannot come in here with me. Like, why won't you leave me alone? (laughs) And then, um, the other thing I remember about this camp is that I, most of my memories were, are with my brothers. There was two different age groups of classes. There was one for the younger kids, which I was in. My brother is six years older than I am. So he was in the older class of the teenagers, but I remember sitting on his lap and being in all of his sessions. So I'm like, did I ever go to my own class? And at the end of the, uh, I don't know how they were like, we're missing an eight-year-old because I was with the teenagers the whole time. But I remember being like, these children who are my age are so annoying. I don't want to be around them. So I'm going to go to the teenagers. And I sat through all their sessions, pet the snake, all the rest. And at the end of the, the summer camp, they had like a little show and tell. So they laid out all of the work from all the kids, like in a row for the parents to come look. Me and the parents were learning what the eight-year-olds did during summer camp. I was walking through <laughs> like... Oh, y'all were busy this summer. Y'all did all of this. <laughs> and then when it was time for the program to end, you're supposed to like collect all your papers to take home. My mother and I walked out, I think with one piece of paper, like a singular paper. I didn't have no activities to take home. And, I, and to this day, I'm like, how come nobody came looking for me? You just let me sit with the teenagers the whole summer. Like, but oh, she cool. <laughs> it was like no attendance She's taking, fine. nothing. She's fine. She's her brother. She okay? <laughs> yeah. And so it's just, it's that's another really em- uh, early memory that I have. And it's it sticks out to me because something that's still very true about me is that I cannot, I get bothering people around me 24-7, 365. Like I get really like, please just give me some air. And I think that was the first time I have a clear memory of being so bothered that it caused me to yell at someone because I don't normally yell at people. And I've only done it three times in life. So that's how significant it was. Um, and then also like, I've also always had friends who were significantly older than I am throughout life. And I think that was also one of the first times I can remember where I was able to make a choice, to, like leave people my age and be like, you all are so annoying. I'm going to go over there. You can find me with the teenagers. And I've continued that that has been true throughout my life. <laughs> so those are some of my earliest memories. I love it. I love it. So the couple of things that I'm pulling from this is one that, and I think we were texting about this earlier today that like, I was like, I'm like drafting an idea for like a screenplay or like a show series called like the dramatic life of Natasha Moody, because <laughs> literally I've never actually known anyone who has as dramatic a life as you like in the in ways that like you're just like why would that be dramatic like that is a regular thing that is ordering something from a store and somehow that becomes like a comic series of events and so that seems right that you're getting in a fight with somebody in the bathroom at age of eight um and then the other thing that stuck with me from this that I think is super powerful is this idea of distilling down the lessons from your memories and that's something that, you know, I think it's just like a good practice in general, but, and I think it, it actually takes your memory from being like a single thing to being like a principle that can help you kind of understand yourself, understand how you interact, how like you want to interact with the world. So I just think that that idea of like, you know, in when I'm like kind of boiling down a situation to not just a crib, but like when I'm in a place where I don't choose to be, when I have barriers around me, when I have, 
I will always have people who will come and support me. So I just, I love that idea. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful for the reminder of that, especially in this conversation when you think sometimes like memories, like I think a lot about memories that get away from you. Right. And it's like, they can get away from you if you don't do that type of thing, like something important, if you distill it down, then like a principle can go with you much long further than like a specific event. Yeah. For me, I think what I just, the idea that a memory can live in your body, like is so, it's such a great way to think about it. Mm-hmm. Because I think we we always think, I think we think about memories almost as being these things that we kind of lock in the back of our heads and that it's solely a mental exercise, solely a like brain exercise. And this idea that your physical presence in that hospital triggered, you know, something that like, you know, what do we, I mean, like developmentally, you're not supposed to remember things that happen when you're two, or that's the very earliest you're supposed to remember. But to have like clear memories like that, I think that, that, that says something a about the power of certain experiences but also i think that says something about you and who you are just through the just through these telling of the stories already i can just tell you know that, that you know that you are that you have a special intuitiveness that i think that you kind of nurture am i right about that is that something that's important to you I, it, get- is, it is whether <laughs> she would like to claim that or not that is true okay okay <laughs> Allison's on the call, so I have to, I, I, I'm like looking in a mirror. So I will say that I struggle to maybe acknowledge that at all times. And I really appreciate you saying that because I, that's an area I struggle with being confident in. So I thank you for, for saying that. And I will, I will stretch those muscles and say, yes, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> it has to be, it has to be. I think that that, that is a gift that you have. I can, I can tell it just like you said, like, yes, we've communicated in like, but just communicating it with you now directly and just hearing you, that, yeah, that's that's the skill that you have. And I did not go ahead plant sec- him. I did not plant him to say that. <laughs> I'm gonna go ahead and second that. So whatever Allison has been telling you, I agree. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you see, oh this is gosh. why this is why I like this guy. Very intuitive <laughs> and and able to see things about people. Um, okay, so but connecting what you shared, um, particularly about the memory in your body, the memory of um, the time when you were in the hospital. Going into the second question, what memories for you have strong emotional cores? Yeah, so it's interesting that uh, Stan, I guess, pulled out that part is because uh, my body has better memory than my mind. So when Stan was saying that we think about memories, sometimes the things you lock away in our brain. When I mentioned earlier about being in a place now of realizing that I have disability and so on and so forth. Like I have one of the things that is most pertinent to this conversation is I have neurological Lyme disease. And so it affects my cognition, it affects my memory and a host of other things, but those are the ones that relate to this conversation. And so things that I have, I thought were locked away, they have been released to the the wilderness and I don't know where to find them. So, so it's like now my body has better memory than my brain. And there's all sorts of discussion and research out there about the trauma, you know, body and remembering trauma and, you know, physiological changes that come from going through difficult experiences. But for me, it's not just things I would consider trauma. It's, it's all sorts of experiences, good experiences, um, so on and so forth. It's not just, I would not just include that into trauma. And so with my neurological Lyme, I, almost have to learn to trust my body more when it tells me something because I may not remember. And that, that goes across many things, whether it's eating a type of food I'm not supposed to eat. I'm like, am I supposed to eat this? I can't remember. My body will tell me like, no, bitch, you weren't supposed to eat that. So just, sorry, I forgot that we're on mic. So anyway, so my body talks to me like that too. (laughs) Put that down. Don't eat that. (laughs) And what do I do? I ignore it. I'm like, it tastes good. I'll deal with that later. Oh, and then later comes, you're like, I'm sorry. I should have listened. listened. (laughs) Oh gosh. But so I went to this training this summer, um, actually not long after, or I went to this training not long after listening to your podcast, the first season about memory. And there was this, uh, facilitator, his name is, uh, Manuel Carmona Jr. It's from this organization in Michigan. 
And in his organ, in his introduction, he said something along the lines of uh, returning to his ancestral land and that even though he was not born there, his ancestors were from there and that the land knew his feet and his soul knew he was home. And I was like, oh, oh my gosh. And that just hit me like I missed half the training after that because I was just thinking about that quote. But it's almost just like to me that that whole my, my body remembers things because he was saying that he wasn't from there, but his body knew like his feet was on the soil and his soul and his body knew he was home. And I was like, oh my goodness, that is what I experienced throughout life. And I hadn't heard, I don't think anybody else really talk about it in that way. And so for me, the memories that have really strong emotional cores are really tied to location. So when I go to Jamaica, which is where I'm from, where I was born, where I lived until I was 12, I, when I go back to Jamaica, even when I just see the island and my feet touch the ground, I feel this joy. I feel this wholeness. Like I feel completely differently than I do in the United States. Uh, and when we moved to the United States, my family moved to New Jersey. Um, and that was a really difficult period for me. For one, I'd experienced racism for the first time that I could remember. Um, and all the things that came along with that, that I was just, was just new and confusing to me. At the same time, there was a lot of turmoil in my family um, with my parents and like their marriage. And then I was like in close proximity to my parents for the first time, because in Jamaica, I was always at swimming or school or at the neighbor's house or something. And so there was a lot going on in New Jersey. And so I went back there when I was about 24, we, we, we left New Jersey when I was uh, 14. And so I went back when I was around 24, I had not seen the town I lived in. And I remember saying, Oh, I want to go for the day. There's so much fun things and places I want to eat. I took a train in from New York and I got off the train and I felt this like angst and confusion. And like, I was like, I can't stay here. And I was like, no, no, you're just being weird. Like just continue. And after an hour, I hopped on that train, went right back to New York. I was like, yeah, I can't yeah. stay here. Couldn't yeah. do it. That speaks to me a lot because I think that we we ignore that intuition sometimes, right? And stay in places where we shouldn't. Mm. We we really do stay in places where we shouldn't because we, like you said, you're discounting that memory. And like even though you didn't, like you said, again, you're feeling it in your body, which again is powerful. And intellectually, you're thinking, oh, I remember these. Like I remember these fun things. But your body is like, no, you also remember, like you said, I can only imagine what it's like to come from Jamaica into New Jersey and experience racism for the first time at the age that you're at. Because like, that's when it starts to show up for most of us, right? Like you're leaving the naivete of childhood. But I feel like at least as a person born in the United States, born in Alabama in particular, I was, you know, already having those tools be developed for me, like since I was young, right? But I can see how, like, all of that and just the fact that it comes out, you said, 12 years later, that, that's some power. That's powerful. Yeah, thanks. It's, it, was, it, was, it was interesting. And I'll, I'll tell an example about the first time that I got hit in the face of racism. <laughs> and I just was like, what is this? And it, I mean, I knew that racism existed in, in Jamaica. I remember I would watch, like, my parents would watch CNN, BBC, and then Jamaican local, local news just on repeat the whole day. And then, you know, sex in, uh, not, not sex in the city, uh, young and the restless at night. So that's, that's what cycled through our house. It's like CNN, BBC, Jamaican news, young and the restless, CNN, BBC. <laughs> Jamaica, <laughs> local news. Uh, so I remember I'd watch it and there was this understanding in my mind that America is racist. That's something I, I knew, yeah. like, somewhere in the atmosphere but when it was happening to me I was like is this you know how they have that meme where the person's like holding that butterfly and they're like is yeah that was me I'm like is this racism is it? it is <laughs> like, oh my gosh <laughs> anyway so um so then the other places that uh I guess are significant is like Florida where I live now um this is a place that I have never come to really fully by choice. Uh, I've always been brought here, brought back here, brought back kicking and screaming, kept here kicking and screaming. And in many ways, this is my crib from that hospital. Like, mm. I feel like I am here and I'm looking through two sets of gates and I'm like, I just want to get to that green pasture. Like, where is it? Um, and so being here, and it's interesting because I've been back in Florida for four years now 
And I would, I thought that over time I would get to a place of like, huh, I'm comfortable. And no, my body is still like, you are still in that crib. <laughs> like you need to get out that crib. Um, and so it, there's been also just a lot of personal turmoil with my family that's connected to Florida. And I think also just this being brought here, not by choice most of the time. Um, my body just remembers that and being, and even when I travel somewhere else and I fly back home from a trip, I feel like the tenseness in my chest, like when the plane, when they're like, oh, we're, we're approaching Fort Lauderdale airport. I'm like, <gasps> like my chest gets all tight, you know? So yeah. And then, you know, and then the other place that's really significant is Michigan where I went to university. Um, I lived there for five years and it's interesting because, uh, when I was in college, that song by Asher Roth, I love college came out. Do you remember that song? Like I love college. I love drinking. No, uh -oh. we were, we were out of college um, when you were in college. Well, yes, but it was a very popular song, but then again, uh -oh. you were in Atlanta and it was like a very, let me, let me stop there. Anyway, I was in Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> I was in Michigan. It was a popular song that came out that the basically this guy singing about how he goes to college and he drinks and parties and he loves college so much. He would do it all over again. That was not my experience. I partied like five times a year. I was crying Monday through Sunday about homework. Like it was really rough, but when I'm in Michigan and I go back there and I've been back quite a few times, I feel this immense sense of pride. It's not joy. It's not like a joyful pride, but it's like, I really finished this and I go home and I'm so proud to be an alumni of that alumnus of that school. And you know, all these things. And, um, so, and then one place that in America, at least I experienced like pure joy and prayers in my hearts to them right now, cause it's a tough time is something about that place. I have been like six or seven times in my life. There's no real, like strong connection between me and New Orleans. Like I had some family or something significant happened there for whatever reason, my foot crosses that city limits. And I am like a whole new person, Wow, whole new person. Like people who've been to New Orleans with me are like, who is, who is this alter ego that pops up in New Orleans? I, I am like <laughs> a whole new human. I've gone probably three times by myself. I get a hotel in the French Quarter, walk around, meet people who live there. I have like 10 friends I've met just from like showing up by myself. I love it. I love it. So it's just all I've said to say is that each, each, all these memories have strong emotional course for me, but it's not like a specific instance. It's just a whole location tied with a whole series of memories that my body remembers. Wow. I feel like New Orleans is like that if you like it. Like if you find, I think that's it. Like it's one of those, like for me, it is not that place. Like I'm, I'm yeah, I, I can do it, but I can also not do it. But what I found is like people who love New Orleans, like they love it, they love it immediately. And they're like, it is the center of my joy. I a hundred percent agree. I know several people like that. To me, New Orleans is like the color purple. It's like people who are passionate about the color purple are just like, mm. this is the only color. Like the other colors are like, mm. it's subpar, right? You are a purple person. You're a New Orleans person. All my people who love New Orleans are co deeply committed in their souls yeah. to New Orleans. But I'm like <laughs> you, Stan, I can do it. I cannot do it. I can, for me, it's about who I'm with always. Yeah. Um, so I'm like, if I'm in New Orleans having a good time, it's because I'm with somebody I care about. Um, but the idea of going by myself and walking around. Yeah, no, I, yeah. That's, <laughs> and, but it's, but, and that's the thing terrible. about the New Orleans thing is that it's like, it seems like it's so instinctual. It's like, yeah. as soon as they get there, like they could be from, like you said, from wherever in the mm -hmm. world. And it's like, I'm in New Orleans, I'm home. And like, yeah, I've never gotten that from New Orleans. But I okay, feel like, yeah. I will yeah. not invite y'all to New Orleans with me. <laughs> but, but you know what? We could <laughs> hang out. Because your New Orleans is probably very fun and I would enjoy it. But then I'd be like, okay, I'm ready to go back to Atlanta now. <laughs> <laughs> After about a week, I'd be like, okay, I'm ready to go back. Go home. I, no, I, I, sorry, go ahead. I, I, totally, I totally resonate though with what you're saying about things feeling uh, almost like they don't make sense in your mind and just make sense in your body. Like that's how I feel a little bit about Ohio. Um, and I've never been able to quite pin down why I don't feel more connected to Ohio, considering that was where I grew up. But I'm like, as I'm listening to you talk, I'm like, I think there's just things about that. Like there's so much of what happened in Ohio, I think happened on a, on a level for me that wasn't very conscious. Like, and we've talked about this in other episodes that like, I really wasn't paying attention to certain levels of things there. And so I think maybe I feel like mildly embarrassed that there are things that happened that I just missed. Mm -hmm. um, and then I just generally am like, 
yeah, like I don't really feel like I knew who I was then. Like the version of Allison that I think of for those 22 years that I was in Ohio, I'm like, she didn't really know much about herself and it feels disconnected from who I am now. So that's why I'm always like, yeah, I'm gonna go back and get this hamburger because I really like these hamburgers at this one particular place, but that's it. And I'm, you know, again, if there's people there that I want to see and want to spend time with, then that's good. But the overall feeling is like, hmm, I could be somewhere else. See, and I, I feel like about Alabama, Huntsville, particularly where my parents live now, the way you feel about Jamaica. Like there is, there's a moment like when I am at my, it's my parents' place now, but it was my grandparents' place before that. And my great-grandparents' place before that. Like when you are actually there on that piece of land, it's like the land knows you. And it know like I like, it's like just, your ancestral home. It's yeah, it's it's like I'm fortunate Truly. to be a person who has an ancestral home. We like we still have the home place. Mm-hmm. And so like being there is like it's almost all memory at this point, if that makes sense. Like it's you know, picking tomatoes with my grandmother, it is shucking peas with my grandfather, it is taking him to church you know, when I turned 16, it's like, now it's like my sister did it when she turned 16. And then it became my turn to take him to church when she went off to college. You know, it's like all of those memories, as soon as I see, you know, as soon as I step onto that piece of land. And so like, like, I am more myself mm-hmm. when I'm there, mm-hmm. which is kind of like, which is definitely, I'm sure how you feel about Jamaica, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's just, that's the place that grounds you. Oh, that is beautiful. I'm over here. Yeah. Like, oh yeah. Yeah. That, and you know, and, and like you say, it's something that if you, if it's, and like, for me, what I have to remember is that I'm fortunate to have that and to have those memories because p- folks, particularly black folks, a lot of us, because of racism, because of what we've been through as a culture, like we don't have those memories and we don't have those places to keep going back to. And that's one of the things that we'll probably get into a little bit later talking about memories is that one of the things I realize now is that my memories are in a way kind of colored because I've always had this place to go back to, to remember It's like the physical place where my memories are is still there. Like it's a place where I, it, you know, I can go back to the physical place and trick, like see a lot of the things and still grab them and the people are still there. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's a beautiful thing that a lot of us don't get to experience. So it's something I'm very, you know, it's something that that as I get older and reflect more that I'm really fortunate to have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'll flip that around to you, Natasha. One of the uh, other questions from the previous episode is what memories stay with you? Some of the memories, <laughs> and I was thinking about this and I was trying to be like, there must be something more positive maybe that comes to mind, but Really, the things that stick with me the most that I do not forget, lime and all, is that every time someone told me that I could not succeed or I was not capable or, you know, Mm. whether it was a personal thing or it was a racism thing or whatever it was, those memories are so clear to me um, and they really stick with me. And I think that uh, in a lot of ways, they motivate me because I really am like, oh, you think just because I'm Black, I won't succeed? Well... I'm here to prove you wrong and I would hate to prove you right. Um, mm-hmm. And then just, you know, allow you to be like, see, there goes another one, um, you know, and, and some of the, the earliest memories I have of this, I was in Jamaica and there was a swim meet. Uh, so essentially in my swim team in Jamaica, there were multiple training groups and you got promoted based on your ability and the coach's discretion. So there came a point where there were people my age being promoted to the, to the higher training group and I was not being promoted. And the coaches were saying it was because I was not as good or strong of a swimmer as these other people. So we we're all in the same age group. We have our swim meet and the swim meets, we swim according, our races according to age. So like five and six swim together, seven and eight swim together, so on and so forth. Well, this one particular meet, instead of giving medals, they gave up uh, go in the dark Frisbees. And I was a competitive swimmer for, for 18 years. It's something I worked really hard at and um, did for a really long time, but I am not somebody that really gets motivated by winning. That was something my coaches would get very upset about. <laughs> I'm like, second, I mean, I did my best. <laughs> like, <you> know, 
<laughs> like I wasn't somebody who's like, that was not what got me into the pool working hard every day. It was like, I want to win. That, that, just, that wasn't a part to me. So when I was little, my mom would come and say, oh, you want to win? You want to get the gold medal? I'm like, eh. but this me, they had that glow in the dark first me. Listen, <laughs> listen, like I was ready. So I, I had one race. I knew I had a good shot at getting this frisbee. And so I took off, put my head down, swam as fast as I could touch the wall. And I won. And all I could think about was this frisbee. Could, I didn't see who was right or left, who I beat, who I didn't beat, what time I swam. So I had, I, you had to walk out of the, get out of the pool and walk to the coach's tent to get the frisbee. Um, so I'm like rushing over to get my frisbee and it was my swim team who was hosting the competition. So it was my coaches who were handing out the frisbees to the winners. And I got to the tent and the coach refused, my coach refused to give me the frisbee. And this whole, like from the time I got behind the block, swam a race, won the race, walked over. I did not think about who was in my heat. I didn't care about anything. I just wanted that frisbee. But the thing was, two of the girls in that heat were in that higher training group. And they were upset that like I had beat these two girls from this higher training group. And that drama continued until I retired. It actually was a big influence in the reasons why I retired when I did actually um, was that co that coach continued to be the coach over the Jamaica national team for a long time. And so, and I always think back, I'm like, I was, I must've been like eight or nine at the time, maybe even younger. And I'm like, which adult withholds a Frisbee from a child because they're mad that she beat somebody that she favored. <laughs> like that, you know, yeah. so that's petty. That's petty. That's petty and developmentally inappropriate. But anyway, yeah, that's a lot of things. <laughs> like now I'm about to put my educator hat on and it was developmentally inappropriate, right? You did what you wanted, what you were supposed to do. You earned that Frisbee that you deserve that that's Frisbee. Right. End I of agree. discussion. <laughs> End of discussion. Sure. So I don't remember what exactly happened after this situation where she did not give me the frisbee, but I do remember standing in front of that tent for a very long time, wondering why she would not give me the frisbee. And everybody's looking at me, wondering why I was just standing there in front of the tent. And I'm she the one wanted your the frisbee. I, I wanted my frisbee. And people are like, why is she just standing there? My mom's looking, why is she just standing there? She wouldn't give me the frisbee. And so that's the earliest memory I have of distinctly somebody being like, you're, you were not supposed to do this and you will not progress further than this. You were not supposed to win this race. You're not supposed to beat her kind of thing. Mm. Um, and then, uh, as I mentioned earlier, moving to New Jersey, uh, was the first time I got slapped in the face of racism. And there were a few things that occurred when we first got here that it took me a long time to realize it was racism. But I'll say that the first time I did sit there and realize, oh, this is because I'm black that she's saying this. Um, I had the, the high school counselor. I was enrolled in like pre-AP courses. And in the school district, you had to take pre-AP in order to take AP classes. You couldn't like take a regular class and then take an AP class. And so I was enrolled in pre-AP courses and I was in homeroom. Um, and then I would go to my pre-AP class after homeroom and the teacher would be like, oh, you were withdrawn from my class. You need to go see the counselors to get your new schedule. And I'm like, why am I being withdrawn from the class? Okay. As I go to the counselor, she withdrew me from all of my pre-AP courses, put me in regular classes. And I was like, why would you take me out of my pre-AP courses? Like, what did I do? You know, what's going on? She's like, uh, it's just that kids like you don't really go to college. And oh. so there's no reason for you to be in pre-AP. And I was like, kids like who? kids who score in the 95th percentile of the state test from middle school and have all A's <laughs> like, like we don't go to college who, which kids are you talking about you know like say it with your chest if you're gonna say it <laughs> what, what do you mean I, and I was you know the way my family raised me I think also just a bit culturally I was taught to not like question authority so she hands me this new schedule and I'm like okay you know at this time I was 11, no, I was 12 turning 13. I was 12 turning 13. And so I just took the schedule, went to these regular classes. And of course the classes I was in the day before I was maybe one of two black kids. Now on my new schedule, I'm like, all these black kids go to this school. <laughs> <laughs> you, ain't, you ain't even know. <laughs> Cause I mean, I swam. So that's another, you know, very predominantly white arena yeah. of things. So anyway, so I went home, told my mom, Oh, mom, the counselor took me out of premium course. My mother went up to that school the next morning. and was like, put her back in her classes. This continued to happen multiple times throughout the year. Mm. Literally, I would just be in my pre-AP class. Teacher would be like, oh, I got, I don't know from the counselor you were withdrawn. 
And I go over to her class and she, I go to her office and she'd be like, I already told you, you don't need to do this. You, you're not going to go to college. Like kids like you do not succeed. It's not going to happen for you. You don't need to be in a pre-AP course. And this is with my A's. This is with my test scores being fine. It was like, and this, it was in this moment that I was like, this has nothing to do with me. Like I have good grades. I'm a good student. I have the test scores. Da, 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 da. And that's when I was like, this must be again with the meme. I have my hand out. Like yeah. this must be racism. <laughs> like this that's, must be it. <laughs> that's all that was. Wow. And there was, I will say there was a time after I finished college that I tried to find her. Cause I couldn't remember what her name was. And I was Googling like, you know, counselors at this school. And I was like, I want to email her a copy of my diploma to let her know she was wrong. You know, but yeah. I was like, it, it was because we, I ended up moving, um, from New Florida, my junior year of high school. So I didn't get to actually finish school there. So she wouldn't have known what I did in my life, but that was, that sticks with me a lot. Cause I was like, you know, she had power over me and that she decided my classes, you know, thankfully I had, my mother is someone who understands the school system in, enough, even though we're from a different system, yeah. she understands the system enough, was in a position to be able to come to the school, all of these things, right. For her to be able to come and advocate for me. But if I didn't have my mother to do that, there's no telling, like there's no telling. And, and I just, a, sorry, go ahead. No, I was gonna say, there's no telling how many students that she had done that to before, like, probably depending on how long she's been there hundreds of students mm -hmm. lives changed because this woman decided black kids don't need to be in pre-ap mm -mm. and you know it was, uh talking about it reminds me that uh we took the psat and it was a big deal at this school some most schools is like a, the kids think it's like a free day from class but at <laughs> this school is a really big deal because uh it was a smaller town and the reputation of where the child goes to college was a big deal. Like if you went to a state school, oof, like why did you even bother go to class? That's how they used to treat stuff. Like they were real, like literally, I remember watching seniors ball their eyes out in April or May because they're like, I have to go to a state school. Like my family's going to disown me. Like it was real crazy. Anyway, I went to a state school, so <laughs> it's not shade to state schools. Anyway, this is how the town was. This is just how people operated, how they, you know, spoke, you go to Ivy league, or you go to like NYU, maybe like that's, that's where that book stopped. And so, um, we take the PS, the PSAT and we would, they would actually send our scores to the colleges to get those like interest letters based on your scores. And it was a huge deal. We would have homeroom. They would set, give the letters to the, the homeroom teacher and the homeroom teacher would announce, they'd be like, Allison, here are your three schools. Stan, here are your three schools. Like that's, it was a big ordeal. So we took our PSATs. You know, I focused it all the rest of it. Then it comes time for us to announce the, uh, the schools that the letters came from. So they're going around. Oh, so-and-so Joey junior, Yale, Harvard, Columbia, Susie senior, you know, this, that, the other. And then the teacher comes and puts down two letters on my table and doesn't say anything and walks away. And I was like, Oh my gosh. Like, what is so I look and the one letter was from Montclair state university, which in our town, again, no shade to Montclair state This in our town. And I'm at high school and the class doesn't people were like, if you went to Montclair state, you might as well just slept for four years. Like that's how they, they, they would think Dang. about school. So that's, I got Montclair state. So I was devastated. And the other one was for Tulane. Now in the Northeast Tulane at the time was not very well known because it's a school in the South Yeah. and at the, and their logo, you know, now I understand New Orleans and Tulane. But, the, you know, 12, 13 year old me, the logo was like some like graphic art that's real Tulane, you know, like very bright and stuff. And I was like, there's a college where a child drew the logo. Like, it's <laughs> and I was mortified. And even just even if I had not had those ideas from hearing what people said about those types of schools uh, around me, the way the teacher, you know, like proudly yeah. announced every day letter and then came silently and put down those two letters. So fast forward, I had another meeting with the, the college counselor because she was trying to keep me from enrolling in AP courses the following year. And she goes, I'm not enrolling you. We keep having this conversation. And she's like, that's why I held your letters after the PSAT. So letters came for me and she kept them in her office and did not give them to the counselor to give to me because according to her, why bother plant dreams in my head for schools that I was never going to be able to go to? What were the schools? 
I, I don't know. I did not get she those never, letters. She never told I, you? They were gone. Those <gasps> letters ceased to exist. Because I remember seeing the class and I'm like, there's a girl, Ariel. And I was like, Ariel, what did you get in the PSAT? Because I see her, her stack of letters. And I'm like, what did you get? My score was higher than hers. And I'm like, no, some na- that math is not mathing. Like, yeah. how, you and know. see, like, knowing what I know, A, being from the South, like, getting a letter from Tulane is awesome. Right. Because, like, you know, and that was back. Like, I'm, if I'm, you know, I'm older than you are. But, you know, like, that was a big deal. Like, Tulane has always been a big mm-hmm. school. So some of that's regional. But also, like, Black girls scoring on a PSAT? Or you can go to wherever you want to go to school. Like, if you're, you can, like, yeah, I, yeah, no, that's crazy. I, she, you probably got more letters than anybody in the class, to be quite honest, because you are a Black girl who scored high on the PSAT. Who's also, like, excelling at a, at a predominantly white extracurricular as well. Yes, like, come on, dude. Mm. It was, it was something, and interestingly, you know, we moved to, well, I'm going a bit off the track here, but what I, well, not really. But when I when I moved to Florida, I, we moved to a predominantly black school. Um, I started attending a predominantly black school, and within that school, even the staff would say like, "Kids from this college don't kids from this school don't go to college." Like, and I specifically remember being in a U.S. history class, and they brought in military recruiters to the class to talk to us. Mm-hmm. And at the time I had signed a, a national letter of intent to swim for Michigan. And so that's where I was going to school. It's like a legally binding document that I signed to, that I'm going to go to Michigan. And so they came in and they were saying, everyone should sign the, let, the, the sign up for the form. Um, you want to talk to a recruiter one-on-one at the time I was 15. And so, cause I was, when I moved from Jamaica, I ended up being young for my grade. So I was 15 senior year. And I was like, I don't think I'm allowed to sign this because I'm 15. Like, don't you have to be like an adult to, to say you want to be in the military? And he's like, no, you can sign it. And I was like, well, I don't feel comfortable signing it regardless. And I already have my situation set up for next year. This man stood there in front of the class and berated me. Like, you think you're, you're going to finish at Michigan? You think that kids from this school go to Michigan? So what, you have your fancy scholarship? You think, what if you get injured? What happens? I'm like, they have, they have like things for that. Like, you don't, just, they don't just kick you out the school. It's like, a, there's stuff for that. You know, like, he's like, oh, what if, what if you go there and you swim slow? What if, what if this, 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 this? And I, I'm 15. Again, like, I keep thinking, like, I was a high school teacher. I'm like, I would never talk to a 15 year old that way as an adult. Like, who, you know, where, what, like, what is going on internally with you that you talk to a child like this? But also, my teacher who works here full time and teaches me every day sits here and lets this happen. And I'm like, so do you agree? <laughs> like, you look at my face every day and you think that I'm being ludicrous for going to that school. And I went back to my high school a couple years ago to get a piece of paper I needed. Um, and when I showed up, I said to the receptionist, like, oh, hi, excuse me. You know, I, I need this paper to sign up for this, 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 this. She was like, from here? And I was like, yes, I went to school here. And she's like, what are you doing? What do you need this for? So I was saying to her, oh, I'm, you know, I'm signing up for, I want to go to grad school. I take some prerequisites. So I need to get my high school transcript. She goes, graduate school? So you already went to college? You went to school here? Were you in the oh IB gosh. program? I said, no, I was not in the, in, in the IB program. I was a regular student. Graduated here in 07. I went to college and now I want to go to grad school. Can I please get this paper? Like, and I'm like, what was sad to me was this was a couple years ago. I graduated in 07. 12 years have passed and y'all still think about the kids the same way. Yeah. That's some some stuff right there. That is. (laughs) If you're just listening to this and not watching our faces, we're we're not just looking at each other like, like wide eye emojis. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. So those are stick with me. Is- okay. Yeah. Those <laughs> sti- I mean, but those are things that would stick with you because like, had you not, like you said, had your support system understood within yourself that had a strong sense of yourself that you were, you know, what you're capable of. Those are the things that derail people's lives. Like those are the things mm-hmm. that like, and like again, if you believe that, yeah. You literally take a different choice. Like choice. Yeah, yeah. after that, they're like, should I, you're like, should I do this or that? And you're yeah. like, no, no. Like that voice in my head is telling me that I'm not capable of that. And so I will not choose whatever yeah. uh, you will not choose the authentic thing, whatever you yeah. really believe that you can do, whatever you actually want to do, you will just choose the thing that aligns with the voice in your head. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think too, just like, um, these were very pivotal points in my life. The, the first instance was when I started high school and I was only turning, I was 12 turning 13 when she was telling me all of this. And she told me this consistently for two years. It wasn't like she said it once and stopped. She kept berating me and berating me constantly throughout those two years. And then this last instance in the school in Florida was my, the beginning of my senior year. That's when you should be encouraging children to explore what paths are ahead of them, you know, so on and so forth. Instead of being like, ah, you won't be able to do that. And I'm like, well, obviously the coaches in Michigan think so because they wouldn't give me a scholarship, you know, I'm like. <laughs> but you also at that point have evidence. And so like your bias is like, you're like, I won't even look at this evidence. Like what matters more is the per- this person's skin. And so all that comes with that is that is the evidence of what I think, not what's actually in front of me, which is this person's transcripts and how they have performed for the last three years. At- oh, yeah. And like, yeah, like you said, like, and I'm thinking about what your transcripts probably look like. The fact that you are, you know, younger. So you're accomplishing this while you're younger than most of your peers, right? So I'm just thinking about, like you said, Allison, looking at all of the evidence and being like, no, this is actually not like, I believe what I believe. So I'm going to try to, because like at this point, now you're purposely, like you're being like, the first time I could be like, okay, she's reinforcing my, I'm reinforcing my stereotypes of folks. But now that you divide this stereotype, I'm going to now purposefully put you back in that box. That is ridiculous Mm -hmm. and shameful. And the, and, the, and the sad fact is, and I know we have to transition on, but the sad fact is that a lot of our kids go through that. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. the even sadder part is that a lot of the people who do that to our kids look like them. Mm-hmm. Talk about it. And that, Talk and that about is, it. And that is a thing that, that, you know, yes, we know that we can, you know, we know structural racism exists. But until we recognize that we do a lot of that to our kids, you know, we're not going to break that cycle. We're not going to let them get free because we're still, we still haven't gotten over our internalized, the internalized things that we think about, the internalized systems that we've set up in our heads that say our kids can't do what they can, what we know they're capable of. Mm. That's, a, that's another episode. Oh, that's, <laughs> another, that's another episode. Stay tuned for part two of this conversation next week. Support for this podcast comes from Lilacs on York Creative Studios. The Family Meeting is produced by me and Allison. Our theme song is by Will Salua and it is entitled 135th in Coffee. You can find the show notes on what we discussed, including links posted in the blog section on lilacsonyork.com. And you can keep up with the show on Instagram at Lilacs on York and on Twitter at The Framley Meeting. You can also now watch us have these conversations on the Lilacs on York channel on YouTube. You can find me on social at Allison K. Mason on IG and Twitter, even though I do not tweet. You can find me on social at Twice Eleven on IG and Twitter, even though I do not post on IG. Thanks for listening. Meet you here next week.